Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, and welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. My name is Tracy Morgan, your host for this third installation of our unique interview program, focusing on recent publications by psychoanalysts. Today we'll be speaking with Dr. Neil Altman about his recently republished uh, in second edition book, The Analyst in the Inner City, Race, Class, and Culture Through an Analytic Lens. Dr. Altman is adjunct clinical professor at the postdoctoral program in psychoanalysis and psychotherapy at New York University. He's editor emeritus of Psychoanalytic Dialogues, the International Journal of Relational Perspectives, and is a founding member of the Stephen Mitchell Center for Relational Studies. Additionally, he is the co-author of a book on relational child psychotherapy. And finally, for many years, he was an associate chief psychologist at Bronx Lebanon Hospital here in New York City, where I am anyway, um, in the Bronx. So um, Dr. Uh, Altman um, has written a book that asks um, questions of analysts as to how do we account for racial difference in the clinic? How do we deal with issues of um, class, poverty, and the ways in which they may impact an analytic treatment? Can analysis um, and analytic perspectives be brought out into the larger world? Does analysis have revolutionary potential um, or is the way in which we practice analysis here in the States um, somehow uh, neutered <laughs> and kept from um, being uh, more revolutionary. Anyway, um, so without further ado, let's um, bring uh, Dr. Altman on the line. Hi, Dr. Altman. Yeah. Um, welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. And, um, Thank you. We're going to um, discuss your your book today, um, The Analyst in the Inner City, Race, Class, and Culture Through an Analytic Lens. Um, and I have a lot of questions for you, but I think the first question I wanted to start with is, could you tell us what inspired you to write this book? Well, let's see, this is the second edition of it. So the first edition came out in 1995, and I wrote it. Um, in the year after I left Bronx Lebanon Hospital, where I had worked for 11 and a half years. Um, I'd been in the Bronx, actually, for 15 years working in public clinics. And while I was working in the clinics, I was so busy that I had no time to write. And um, I did build a psychology internship at Bronx Lebanon Hospital while I was there and needed material to teach from um, that addressed public clinic work and um, inner city work from a psychoanalytic perspective and found that there was almost nothing of the sort, which didn't really surprise me because I had been aware since graduate school that there was a two-tier mental health system in this country and that psychoanalysis was, um, was almost universally reserved for people of high social class who had money, who had a certain kind of uh, educational background and way of thinking, sort of a culturally specific uh, form of treatment. And then when I went to work in the Bronx, I was really surprised to find that um, that what was going on there was considered to be almost a separate world in terms of mental health treatments. And it was clear to me that in my graduate training that I was being prepared for private practice. It was really exclusionary. So when I started training people in the psychology internship in the Bronx, it became a um, almost a, like a defiant act to, to apply psychoanalysis to that work. Um, so... So as soon as I opened that door, I saw that there were innumerable ways in which psychoanalytic concepts and ways of working were were totally illuminating about the conditions of of clinical work in public clinics, as long as you were willing to think outside of the box. Um, let me try to stay a little bit close to your question. How did it occur to me to write the book, right? Yeah. 
I mean, yeah, you're, answering, I wrote, you're answering the question well. I'm, I'm, I think your answer is uh, illustrative of, um, you know, sort of what the, the two-tier mental health system of, of which you're discussing. So if there's more you want to say. Right. Well, I'll just say that once I started writing, it just poured out of me. I wrote uh-huh. a whole book in, in a year, maybe spending... I don't know, three, four hours a week writing. And every time I sat down to write, I was astonished that there was so much that had already taken shape inside of me. So, um, Well, for those who have not seen the book, I I would like the listening audience to know that this is a dense book. So if you were writing at that that pace after all those years of working uh, in that clinic, you, you really do have a lot to say. In this book, I was amazed by its complexity and its density, and how how much you, I could feel you had inside of yourself. That's that's uh, that's yeah, amazing. dense, but it flowed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's that's tr- which is a <laughs> which is a good experience, right? If you get to right. that, um, right? Yeah, I mean, I was I actually in, in thinking about what you just said. Um, I have my background is I have a social work license and psychoanalytic mm-hmm. training, and I had mm-hmm. um, sort of the reverse experience. Um, and I was thinking this reading your book that in social yeah. work, the uh, yes. idea is like I had to hide that I was in analysis. In fact, I had a psychoanalytic um, supervisor when I was at a day treatment program that I sought out privately, but I couldn't uh-huh. let anybody in the social work school know. <laughs> they would have looked down yeah. upon that because, of course, that's not how poor people don't, aren't supposed to be given psychoanalysis. Um, yeah. You know, well, what you say reminds me that that what I just said in response to your first question is specific to psychology, mm-hmm. clinical psychology, and it doesn't really apply to social work and it doesn't really apply to psychiatry. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a measure of a, of another kind of elitism that I as a psychologist don't, don't always remember that social workers have been using psychoanalytic concepts in the, in inner city public clinics for what, more than a century. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I felt like, wow, I'm discovering this applicability of psychoanalysis here where the trail had been blazed before and and I wasn't um I wasn't uh giving it the honor of priority. Yeah, but but I wonder if uh, social work hasn't changed in many respects because I know that so many people are, you know graduating in the last 10-15 years um in certainly at Hunter at sort of the you know the, some very esteemed programs you don't want to mention that uh you're going to bring psychoanalysis into um mm-hmm. a community uh mental health clinic well you know and I wondered yeah. you come to wonder are poor people allowed to have an unconscious Right, or even a mind. <laughs> right, right. Uh, that that exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, I was um, thinking also. Uh, what's striking in your book is that uh, I I don't know if you have training in in sociology or cultural theory, but you really work with a lot of concepts from those disciplines: whiteness, class, race, uh, culture, ethnicity. And I was thinking, what was it like for you to venture out into other disciplines um, while thinking psychoanalytically? Yeah, I, 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 that's been a great experience for me. I feel like psychoanalysis has become very insular. Mm-hmm. And it's understandable, I think, because in this country anyway, psychoanalysts are mostly clinicians. And so there's a there's a, a tremendous felt need to find ways to respond to the suffering of patients. And so it becomes sort of narrowly clinical um, another factor there, though, is in the United States, psychoanalytic training has taken place almost entirely outside of universities, mm-hmm. in institutes that are freestanding, with the exception of the NYU postdoctoral program and the Adelphi postdoctoral program. It's all taken place in institutes, so there hasn't been the kind of interdisciplinary exchange. Mm-hmm. Um, in my program, though, some of the some of the major contributors have been people who were not trained in mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, disciplines like Jessica Benjamin and Muriel Dimon, um, people from outside of the mental health fields have brought a different perspective that's enriched the clinical training as well. So, um, you know, the whole feminist movement that's been so influential in psychoanalysis in recent decades, I think, owes a lot to the fact that that um, people with a more academic background were able to come into psychoanalysis, and as the field has gotten more and more professionalized, people like that have been excluded, I think, to the detriment of the field. So 
um, I was very close with Stephen Mitchell, who was, um, you know, sort of the founder, along with Jay Greenberg, of the relational point of view in psychoanalysis. And Steve was was very, very much an intellectual and loved bringing in ideas from adjacent disciplines. And I felt very much in sync with that. So bringing in cultural theory um, and trying to interface that with clinical work has been tremendously exciting mm-hmm. for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can sense the excitement um, actually in in the book. Um, I was thinking that um, you, I have a quote that I, I pulled many quotes from the book as I was reading through, uh-huh. and, um, and it's in the introduction you write, uh, and I'm going to quote you, psychoanalysis is developed as an exclusionary discourse. Classism, racism, and ethnocentrism embedded in our theory are manifest at the level of practice by the exclusion of non-mainstream members of our society as non-analyzable. The excluded yeah. other represents the psychically disowned. I was wondering, if, could you elaborate on, on this idea? Because we do have a lay and a professional audience, um, and I think it's a really, mm-hmm. it's an important idea that you work with throughout the book. Um, mm-hmm. Well, I think what you're referring to there is the idea that whenever you see people being excluded, then you've got to wonder about what psychic purpose is being served for those who are doing the excluding. Mm-hmm. I think that's what, that's a very basic psychoanalytic question is is what are we avoiding not only in terms of feelings and thoughts and impulses and all of that but people right. like if you look at the way our urban areas are set up and the way that well-to-do people are are um trying to isolate themselves from poor people and the way that works racially and and culturally and and so on. There's a social level to that, um, but there's also a way in which the people who are excluded represent parts of self hmm. that are that are uh, devalued or or disavowed. And I think it's a it's it's so striking in the United States with suburbanization mm-hmm. and the way that people can move farther and farther out away from the inner cities and as a result of that I and mean, this is a serious problem this leads to the mm-hmm. to the all the um, global warming the, the the consumption of gasoline as people have to drive farther and farther just to get a quart of milk or whatever and the and the isolation that people feel in the suburbs, the breakdown of communities, mm-hmm. and life in this country has gotten so deformed, I think, from people's efforts to get away from whatever they're trying to get away from. Right, right. Leaving all the badness behind in the city, yeah, and running and running elsewhere. Um, that's a that's a powerful idea. You work with the idea throughout the book um, of you work with projection and projected and uh, and how sort of racism, classism, that they have a relationship to um, projective processes. Would you care to talk mm-hmm. about that? Well, that refers to the psychoanalytic idea that that you can try to get rid of something in yourself that you don't like or that makes you anxious by by developing the idea that it exists in someone else and not in you. And I think in the United States, uh, race race is organized to some extent by that. For example, white people... Um, who want to deny that that there's violence perpetrated on black people in this country in the interest of of keeping them down and exploiting them and so on can attribute violence to black people and 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 develop this idea that white people are are kind decent people while black people are have higher crime rates and um higher unemployment rates and so on and um and then of course if you keep people down there will be more crime in the inner city neighborhood so it's it seems to be simply a reflection of fact and the dynamic whereby violence is attributed to certain people and then induced in them by the conditions of life that they're that they have to live in um that's an example of projection where white people can say can disavow the police brutality let's say that goes on in black neighborhoods by by police acting in their names 
mm-hmm. and say that it's because the violence is out there. Sure, sure. I was I was thinking actually as you were talking um, that maybe psychoanalysis is sort of the other in U.S. mental health, the mental health system, mm-hmm. um, uh-huh. in which much is projected uh, into into yes. psychoanalysis. Do you have any thoughts about that? Well, I, I think it works the other way, too. Mm-hmm. I think psychoanalysis, I don't know how old you are, but if you're um, older than probably 50 or so, you might remember when psychoanalysis was the was elite the among mental health off. disciplines. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. In terms of therapy, um, Hello? Yeah. Oh, okay. I lost you for a minute. Go ahead. Okay, I'm back. Okay. Um, psychoanalysis was elitist at one point. Right. Which is kind of it's an occupational hazard of. We know the unconscious. Yeah. Which is a crazy idea because if there's anything about the unconscious, it's that it continually surprises you. <laughs> right. Right. I'm sorry. Um, are you fading out? Are you are you becoming quiet? Or are you fading out? I'm not sure if we're having a technical problem. Sorry. Oh, it might be a technical problem. Okay. Because I wasn't doing anything different. Okay. Um, unless I was letting the phone slip a little bit. <laughs> okay. Hold on to the phone. <laughs> okay. Uh-huh. All right. Tell me if I get quiet. Yeah. So, um, so I was saying that I think it's an occupational hazard of psychoanalysis that analysts get the arrogance of thinking that they know the unconscious. Mm-hmm. When when that's actually a contradiction in terms, but I think in the fifties and the sixties in the United States, analysts had this knowing attitude and looked down on other mental health professionals as being um, superficial, let's say. And so I think some of the denigration of psychoanalysis now is payback. Ooh, I thought of it that way. Uh huh. Yeah. So I think to some extent, analysts have contributed to creating that situation. On the other hand, to get back to the point that you're making, which, which I think is very important, it's there's something in psychoanalysis when it's done well that's very humanizing. Yeah. It, it treats people as, with a lot of respect, as human beings, whereas the the kinds of treatments other kinds of treatments are more objectifying in terms of treating the biology of the person or treating the behavior of the person rather than the person, him or herself, right. in all of her complexity. So in that sense, I think as the society becomes more and more dehumanized in many ways, psychoanalysis is, a, by its very existence, is a kind of a challenge. Yeah. I- so in that sense, it breeds resentment. Right. That's right. It does breed a lot of resentment. <laughs> and we hear, you know, you pick up any magazine, particularly in August, and they're berating the analysts for leaving town, right? So uh, we, <laughs> we, su- we suffer in that way. But, uh, but there is an, a, a, the, the unconscious seems to me, maybe even more than psychoanalysis, to um, be derided uh, at, at this yeah. point. I don't even know if it has to do with our profession um, as, as much anymore. I, I, it's hard to say. Um, you, you develop an idea um, uh, in the book um, called the social third. And I yeah. know of you know, the concept of thirdness from Ogden, from Benjamin. Um, and I was wondering, could you elaborate on uh, more, tell us more about this idea of the social third in the clinical setting? Mm-hmm. Well, the idea came from from um, the original idea was the two-person psychology contrasted with a one-person psychology. One-person psychology means that the field of observation is is a person, a person's mind, and the observer is is thought to be objective in the sense of standing outside the field of observation. Mm-hmm. Like that's you know that's nineteenth, uh, early twentieth century science where the scientist was supposed to factor himself out the equation and make objective observations. And you still see that in psychological testing, where the situation is supposed to be standardized so that the particularities of the tester aren't influencing the person who's being tested. And psychoanalysis developed with that idea. That's why the analyst sits behind the patient out of sight 
doesn't say very much, doesn't reveal very much about who he or she is. It's all in an effort to be objective so that you can view the patient without contaminating the field. That's a one-person psychology. Now, two-person psychology came, um, I think, um, first was formulated by Harry Stack Sullivan, who said that that the therapist, the psychiatrist in his language, uh, was a participant observer. And it's a it's a deceptively simple term that he coined there. The, the therapist is a participant and an observer, and that defines a two-person psychology. What you're observing is an interaction between yourself and another person. Mm-hmm. And then that creates a split within the therapist, where the therapist is both participating but also observing his or her own participation. Mm-hmm. So that those kind of ideas were out there, and the two-person psychology kind of defined the relational turn in psychoanalysis. And then it occurred to me that you can't really look at the dyad either without taking account of, of the context which in which they're functioning. So that can include... That, that's indispensable when you're looking at clinical work in in a in a public clinic, mm-hmm. because the public clinic is is very influential on what goes on in the treatment. Um, uh, for example, public clinics are communities, and the patients often come from the same community as the clerical staff. Let's say. And also you've got the clinic as part of the social service network. So people come in, the patients come in, and um, the clinic becomes like a little microcosm of the world they live in, unlike the private office. Mm -hmm. Now, the private office is also an environment of a particular kind. It's organized by capitalism. It's organized by the medical model, and that has an impact, too on how the therapist, the therapist's experience, the client's experience. And then there's the community context. Is this a, a, poor, a poor, oppressed neighborhood? Is this the Upper East Side of Manhattan? What's the culture of the people? Are, these, are the people in the community from Latin America? Which Latin American country? Are they Jewish? Are they uh, Northern Europeans? You know, all of those things. And then what's the culture, cultural background of the therapist? So the three-person idea is an effort to, to situate the therapist and the client in, in their context. Mm-hmm. I see. I was thinking um, about, you know, the difference between working in a public setting and a private practice. And I was thinking about how uh, important to analytic work um, we think the frame is, um, the, fr- mm-hmm. the frame being the arrangement for payment, come on time, pay on time, use of the couch, whatever, yeah. you, you know, all that stuff. And I was thinking uh, about how does one create a frame in a clinic where uh, we're doing things that um, – we might not do, for instance, in a private practice, giving out um, metro cards, um, you know, yeah. providing food. Um, do you have thoughts about how, how one does maintain a frame? It's to, to study the resistance, right? We need to have a frame. It's very helpful. Well, the, what your question implies that, that what, whatever doesn't fit inside the frame is resistance. Mm-hmm. But, but the frame is also culturally specific. Right. So, um, well, here's an example. Freud's frame, the early analyst's frame, only applied to the session itself. Mm-hmm. And so once the session ended, the, the therapist and the patient might go out to dinner together. Right. That's a very different kind of frame than the one that evolved in the United States, where, it, where the, the abstinence, the anonymity of the analyst became total. Mm-hmm. And if you saw somebody on the street, um, um, you treated you treated the person like you didn't see them, or you said the minimum, or you know you couldn't you couldn't be introduced to the person's spouse, or mm-hmm. you know all of the, it became a matter it it became much more like hiding. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, then. Some people pointed out that this kind of a frame that evolved in the United States was actually um, inhuman. That um, um, 
some analysts took it to the point of of not saying of not saying. Wait. Oh. <laughs> Tell her I'm on a radio program. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the okay. analyst's office he, gets busy. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> We're banging down the doors to get in. That's good. Okay. Right. <laughs> anyway, um, um, we were discussing just aspects of the of the, the the sort of analytic way of working, where the uh, the analyst doesn't, let's say, the patient's father dies, and the analyst doesn't say, "I'm sorry." <laughs> right. Things like right. that. Right. Or you're not allowed to say good morning, or whatever. And the danger, I think, in that, in having a very rigid frame like that, mm-hmm. is that um, there are things that aren't talked about as psychological issues because they're they're considered to be part of the frame. So, for example, you ask me what my fee is. Right. And I tell you what my fee is. And then we don't discuss what it means that I'm asking you for $300 or $50 or whatever it is I'm asking you for. It becomes just a like a. It becomes something outside of the interaction. Right. That's the danger of regarding the frame as something sort of fixed. Right. And then there's the the thing that Winnicott pointed out, which is that um, that there's a danger in compliance. Mm-hmm. Like you're talking about identifying resistance by resistance to the frame. But when, for Winnicott, he turned that on his he, on its head and said that that actually the, the the most insidious form of resistance is compliance. Right. Or false self kind of thing where you just sort of go along with what's expected of you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So But I guess I you know the like, way th- go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, you go ahead. <laughs> I was just going to say that the way things change in psychoanalysis is that um, something an, a um, an extension is made in order to deal with a particular population. Mm-hmm. For example, with children, you can't be as as uh, um, strict about the frame as you would be with an adult. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't work with children. The nature of play is different. You have to contribute your own ideas. You can't be as reserved as you would be with an adult. And the fact is that most, many of the analysts who made innovations in adult psychoanalysis were also child analysts. Right. Anna Freud, Melanie Klein, Winnicott, um, who else? Anyway. Those are some of the heavy hitters, yeah, sure. Those are some of the heavy hitters. Uh-huh, so uh-huh. those are people who who made accommodations to working with children and then extended that to work with adults. Right. Or you have people who worked with more severely disturbed people. You have people who worked in hospitals, mm-hmm. people who were psychotic, people who couldn't, who were thought to be unable to tolerate the analytic frame. Right. But but then the the extensions that were made in order to work with them mm-hmm. got applied to everybody. Mhm. Over time. Right. So that's that's how things change. There's we're going to do something that's not kosher so to speak because this particular person needs it and then over time we for, we forget that it was supposed to be specific to a kind of person. Right. Right. In fact, I think doesn't uh, Tony Bass have a uh, an article and um, about the frame in which he describes um, working with letting the patient um, more or less create uh, the frame. And um, I mean, my yeah. my training is is as a modern analyst, so I the patient always sets mm-hmm. the frame. I never, I don't have mm-hmm. a frame. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. we're trained to work with you know our, our base training is with um, people with uh, schizophrenia, and so they can't tolerate a lot of contact. We say, well, would you mm-hmm. like to come? We don't say when would you like to come back. We say, would you? <laughs> Like to come back, and the patient may say yes or may say no, um, or how frequently would you like to meet? And they may say once a month, and that's respected because that's that's what can be tolerated. But often that's not considered to be analysis, right? So it's you know you're you're sort of uh, damned if you do and damned if if you don't. Um, Yeah, but it's an interesting thinking analytically. For me, thinking analytically means you're thinking about how each person the patient and the analyst are making meaning 
out of their lives and out of the interaction they have with each other. Mm-hmm. And if that's what's going on and with attention to the blind spots of each person, and I mean each person, both the analyst and the patient, mm-hmm. then that's an analytic treatment. And I don't care whether it's going on in, in a private office or a public clinic or in the McDonald's or <laughs> the patient's home, you know, because sometimes, sometimes that happens. Oh, yeah. There, there are programs that, that do community outreach. And I think those programs need an analytic point of view even more than than sitting in your office requires an analytic point of view. Yeah, yeah. I just I just was looking through a book called um, uh, what is it? Uh, Psychoanalysis in the Trenches, I believe. Uh, yeah. Which uh, really is fascinating in terms of you know taking a psychoanalytic approach to uh, to community to right into the community to community problems rather than working sort of just one on on one. Um, yeah. And I guess you write a lot in this book about um, sort of not just the social third, but really how might psychoanalysis be a force for social change, which I think is a yeah. really fascinating idea. Can you talk yeah. about that? And Yeah. Um, well, you know, the idea that the, the way we organize society in terms of hierarchies and valuation and devaluation and um, um, that sort of thing, that, that that reflects psychic defensive operations. Mm-hmm. That idea, I think, um, opens the door to thinking about what's the, what's the psychic defensive function of injustice and inequity. And so it provides a basis for thinking about um, how society might be different if we were more open to letting in the suffering of other people. I'll give you an example of that. Um, I've spent the la- I spent last summer, and I will spend the next two summers for six weeks each in India, on a Fulbright project, and um, in a class that I was part of, the students and the faculty were all asked to go out into the community and have some kind of conversation across social class lines with people that they wouldn't ordinarily talk to, but who they would be interested in talking to. So I lived in a, at the time that I was in Delhi, there were a lot of people from the countryside in Delhi doing construction for the Commonwealth Games that were about to happen. So you had all of these nearly destitute people who were coming into Delhi to work to build luxury residences for the for the foreigners who were going to come in for the Commonwealth Games, and uh, and I was wondering why are they putting up with this? Like you would see people who were virtually naked breaking stones with hammers on the side of roads to build the the boundaries of of new roads while richer people went by in their cars and so on. And I wondered, why, why do they put up with this? Why do they do this? And then it occurred to me that if, you, if I were to approach some of these people and ask them what their life is like, mm-hmm. that that's the first step in a very revolutionary movement. Because as soon as they start to reflect on the conditions of their lives or their suffering, then the door is open to thinking maybe it doesn't have to be this way. (laughs) That's right. That's right. So if you keeping psychotherapy from people who are oppressed like that is part of suppressing the awareness of inequity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. I was a question that I was in the back of my mind. I actually didn't jot it down, but as you're talking, I'm thinking about how, how is it that people who are marginalized and oppressed get to identify against and come to identify against their own best interests mm-hmm. you know, about the hegemonic process and how psychoanalysis mm-hmm. can intervene. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, but I think psychoanalysis can do that too. Mm-hmm. Itself, as a field, that psychoanalysis in this country has become part of the exclusionary elitist society mm-hmm. insofar as we're treating only rich people. So it's not like um, it's not like we're not prone to the same blind spots 
mm-hmm. as everybody else in the society. But in order to become aware of our own blind spots, I think we need psychoanalysis. <laughs> it's a tautological argument, but I totally get it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's the analysis could 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 help to set us free. Um, yeah, yeah. And and we need it, uh, and we need to look at our our own profession and see how we uh, reproduce. Yeah. Trouble right. dynamics. Yeah, I, I, right. I understand that. How how could we? I mean, you know, wouldn't it be terrific if? Um, in uh, more clinics, and there's not, too, I mean, I'm in New York City, there aren't that many uh, freestanding clinics um, for poor people to come in and, you know, use Medicaid and get treatment, but it seems that there's yeah. a, a real push for the cognitive behavioral approach. Right. Um, and a denigration of psychoanalysis. How, I would like to see that turned around, because I really think that psychoanalysis is uh, such, a, such a marvelous treatment, and um and I, what could we? What comes to mind? I mean, how do we begin to affect that kind of change? Well, I think we have to um, try to find some way to alter the view of psychoanalysis in the public mind, mm-hmm. away from it being a luxury and a something that that you have to have a certain kind of educational background for, or that's invariably expensive. For example, in other countries that I visited, let's say even England or Italy, the average session might be at the most $100 a session and people are seen three, four times a week. In England, at the Tavistock Clinic, which is um, has been part of the National Health Service there, they see, they see very poor people four or five times a week for very low fees. Right. And... Um, Actually, Freud, there's a book by Elizabeth Danto called Freud's Free Clinics. Yes. Which documents how Freud, at Freud's direction, every psychoanalytic society in Europe had a free or low-cost clinic through the 1920s mm-hmm. until the Nazis came and drove the analysts out. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if something like that, if that, this is something that disappeared in the United States because when the refugee analysts came here, they saw that they could find a privileged place for themselves in the world of capitalist medical model private practice. Mm-hmm. And that's how it happened. Right. But it's not necessary. And I think if analysts can, can think about how to uh, think what it would mean to do psychoanalysis in the community, that that would do a lot to change the public perception and make people more interested again. I think also psychoanalysis is out of favor more with other mental health professionals than it is with the public at large. Like I was astonished to find that that when I applied for the Fulbright grant, um, I had to apply in a discipline and psychology and psychoanalysis were not one of the disciplines they were looking for. Hmm. So I applied under global public health and I made no no secret of the fact that I'm a psychoanalyst, but that I thought psychoanalysis could make a contribution to global public health, and it was approved. So that was uh, that was surprising, but maybe it shouldn't have been surprising. And um, some of us at NYU uh, applied for a Ford Foundation grant in 2002 to do a conference on race, racism, and psychoanalysis. Yeah. And the Ford Foundation gave us $150,000 for that conference, the first major grant from from a major foundation to a psychoanalytic conference. So I think, you know, there, people are intrigued with psychoanalysis, really. Uh, that, and I, mean, I think we just have... Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say that's the idea behind this program, is to really get psychoanalytic ideas out into uh, a larger audience, because I think that people are absolutely... Um, hungry uh, for what we have to say, um, and yeah. uh, but I always think of us as like a, the sort of the secret, the secret uh, um, profession that everyone loves to loves to hate and hates to love. Um, and mm-hmm. there's a lot of you know, and, and of course that that reflects the unconscious, uh, you know, in in, in yeah. many ways. Um, but that you're saying we should definitely assume that we may be we may be more accepted. Um, uh, in uh, sort of the the larger world, which is which is a very hopeful message. Um, yeah. Also, you you said people want are hungry for what we have to say. We also need to be hungry for what other people have to say. Mm-hmm. Who should you we know, be listening to? We should be listening to everybody. 
I mean, it, when you have a conversation with somebody outside the field and they hear you're an analyst, they will have things to say. That <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, before you t- you talked about how I was open to cultural theory and sociology and anthropology and other fields like that. I think that for sure we need to be listening to. Mm-hmm. Then um, um, people will people very often will say, oh, and I had a dream the other night, and what do you think of this? And um, people who aren't trained in psychoanalysis may very well have their own ideas about um, how the unconscious works. And I think if, if you're listening as well as talking in a situation like that, you'll kind of draw out from people an interest in the unconscious that was already there but unformulated. Mm-hmm. So I think that's an important thing to do, too, mm-hmm. and not to feel like we're the possessors of this esoteric knowledge and the world needs to needs to listen to us. Yeah, no, every, everybody has access to this knowledge. Uh, <laughs> if, if, right. If you just develop, if you develop the capacity to hear it, uh, absolutely. Right. Yeah. Um, I wanted to... Um, ask you a question. I was, you know, I read some of the reviews of the book, and um, they were generally very positive, but there was a a critique, and I wanted to get your thoughts about this. Um, It was said that you, that that an argument is made in the book that an interpersonal or relational psychoanalytic model is more appropriate, uh, I guess, Mm -hmm. than a a classical analytic or ego psychological Mm -hmm. or uh, when working with, um, with poor, uh, I, I, the term poor urbanites comes to mind. And I was wondering, mm-hmm. could you, it seems like a pretty clear conclusion that you, that you have drawn in the book. And I, I was wondering, mm-hmm. can you talk to us about what um, has made you, you know, draw that conclusion? Yeah, yeah I think if, if you think of classical psychoanalysis as being sort of um, skewed toward the one-person side, mm-hmm. that is toward looking at the trying to look at the patient objectively as opposed to looking at the interaction, mm-hmm. that you can make an argument that there's a lot to be gained from that, from the one-person point of view. Um, it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be um, to the exclusion of a two-person point of view, but I think in the abstract, you can argue for the value of a one-person psychology. But when it comes to race and culture, I think it's and social class. I think it's dangerous actually to have a one-person psychology, because it leads to the objectification of people, which closely um, mirrors the way things worked in colonialism. Mm-hmm. That is, that the Europeans objectified people in Asia and Africa and Latin America um, in a way that that caused them to be seen as primitive. There's a book called um, Aboriginal Populations in the Mind by Celia Brickman mm-hmm. that that follows the development of the idea of the primitive. And what's missing from the idea that, that people in third world countries are primitive is the idea that the Europeans were looking at them as if they could make objective judgments mm-hmm. without seeing what they were doing, what the Europeans were doing. They were taking people's lands away from them and killing them. Mm-hmm. So the idea that, that I'm sitting up here passing judgment on the, on the maturity of your civilization while I'm killing you, like who's primitive in that situation? <laughs> right. Pretty, pretty clear. Um, I guess I, I have a, a question for you. I was thinking about um, a case, and um, I'm okay. not, not so much looking for supervision, but I guess I wanted to hear your your thought um, because I, I was thinking about this uh, taking up the social um, or sort of race or class or ethnicity, taking it up in the in the uh, in the office, and um, 
I think that a lot of analysts don't take up the social unless the patient brings it into the room. And even then, we may just look at it symbolically or for the emotional message it contains. And mm-hmm. I was thinking, I, I do treat several black patients in my private practice, and, um, and I've, my name is you know, Tracy Morgan. And so um, many patients come to me thinking I'm going to be um, black, actually, like the black mm-hmm. male comedian. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, but I was raised white, as far as I know. I, I guess that's my, my, uh, my background, right? So... Um, mm-hmm. So unless a, one of my black patients would, will bring up my whiteness um, or their feelings about our racial difference, I tend not to attend to it, mm-hmm. um, which I guess reflects my training. I tend not to introduce my ideas into the session unless prompted. And um, mm-hmm. the other day, I guess, you know, a patient was really in touch with my unconscious because, <laughs> and in anticipation uh-huh. of this interview, uh, a black patient um, who I treat who can be very cautious about his negative feelings for anyone and mm-hmm. who I really sense has a lot of negative transference toward me, told me mm-hmm. that he wasn't sure it was okay to speak openly to a white person about his feelings. Now, my mm-hmm. sense is that he has a hard time speaking to anyone uh, he values about his negative feelings toward them. He has a history mm-hmm. of a lot of, a lot of neglect. Um, and um, I was wondering, how would you say race matters in that kind of an interaction, um, working analytically with, with a, a patient um, who brings this up? What would you say? Did he say safe? Um, he wasn't he, sure it was safe? He wasn't sure uh, that it was uh, it was okay, safe. I'm not sure if he said it was okay. I think he said okay. He didn't know if it was okay, okay. to talk to me uh-huh. about it, you know, to, to, talk about, to talk to a white person about his feelings. He didn't say a negative yeah. or positive, just his feelings, period. Right. Well, you know, if we were to really talk about that interaction, we would have to talk about what preceded it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, had he said something and then had second thoughts about how you were reacting to what he'd said, to mm-hmm. what he had revealed? Mm-hmm. So that that's one aspect that we don't have time to get into. Right. And then, um, but then I would want to know what he meant by okay. Mm-hmm. And I would also pay attention to what I feel in response to his saying that. Like, do I feel then... Um, misunderstood or do I feel um, defensive or do I feel guilty and how does my feeling relate to whatever he's feeling like is he asking me can I tolerate what he feels Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like if he thinks that I'm prejudiced and he tells me that maybe I just did something that that seemed prejudiced on a racial basis, mm-hmm. um, can is it okay to tell me that, or am I going to get angry and defensive and put him down for that, mm-hmm. or or what? You know, so all of that has to be brought out. But but I wouldn't take a questioning stance mm-hmm. in that situation because then that puts him on the spot. And you, right, like he's telling you, he doesn't know if it's okay to say how he feels, and then you say, well, how do you feel about? <laughs> <laughs> That's not going to work. No, I, t- I told him I was very pleased he was talking to me about this. There you go. Because <laughs> the feeling I had was I was pleased. This was one of the most aggressive things this man has ever managed to say to me. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> so yeah. I, I viewed it as, as a step uh, a step forward uh, for, yeah. for both of us. Um, and right. I did feel pleased. I, I, actually, my heart was warm. I was like, good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was a delight. Right. And how did he react to your saying that? Uh, he he smiled and uh, he's, it's actually in a couple's treatment. He he smiled and he said, "Well, you know, uh, maybe uh, maybe I can let you know uh, when you annoy me." <laughs> actually, uh-huh. I said, "Well, please right. do." I said, "Because I could be very annoying." And he said, "Yeah, I'm learning that." <laughs> uh-huh. So you right. know, it was it was a, a, a good interaction. I think uh, you know it was sort of expansive uh, for him. Yeah. To let me know that and he did I do something annoying. just now that was annoying? <laughs> right, right. Yes, that that's a. Did a, I do something today that was annoying? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, Am I doing something right now that's annoying? <laughs> I'm not finding you annoying. <laughs> I'm enjoying our interview. <laughs> right. But, but um, I guess the I wanted. As I finished reading your book and spent time thinking about it, um, I kept having um, four names that begin with F kept coming to my mind, Freud, Uh Ferenzi, Fromm, Fanon. And Uh I thought your book is um, 
Those were the big, uh, the big four uh, uh-huh. uh, analysts uh, yeah. with, uh, or you know, psychiatrists with names that begin uh, yeah. with F. And I, I just wanted to say, do you, can you say anything about about the the, the big four? Because I think they're really a big part of your book. Uh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Freud, you know, Ferenczi and Freud, they had this dialogue where Ferenczi took the position that has lately come to be called relational. He was always looking at the analyst and what the analyst was doing that was facilitating or not facilitating the treatment. Mm -hmm. And Freud very often uh, took the more scientific objective position. So, um, and from, um, he brought in the, the, the social, the socio-cultural context for example, in talking about um, the marketing personality of late capitalism, he brought in the social third. He talked about how what's valued in a particular culture shapes the personalities of people within it. Mm-hmm. So he's the pioneer, as far as I'm concerned, with the social third mm-hmm. in psychoanalysis. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Fanon was speaking from the perspective, he was a participant observer. He was a pers- an Algerian um, psychoanalyst who could speak with the voice of somebody who had suffered from colonialism and saw how how people in a place like Algeria were um, taking in the denigrated image of themselves that they were getting from the French. Mm-hmm. And he was thinking about that psychoanalytically. So he's, he's another person who is, was a pioneer in thinking about the social third and how a pre- social oppression gets into people's minds. Right. Right. Um, we're almost out of time. Is there anything that you wanted to uh, say <laughs> that uh, we haven't uh-huh. gotten to today? There might be a lot, but we have a little time. Well, there's, you know, the the new chapters in the 2009 revision of my book have to do with different kinds of um, systems that I've gotten involved in and how I started to think about them psychoanalytically, like how the American Psychological Association came to tolerate participation of psychologists at Guantanamo Bay yeah and you know that that how to think about that um, in terms of what's really um, what what motivated that uh, that particular move among psychologists and then I also had a chapter on suicide bombing where I tried to think about um, what happens when we think of the suicide bomber as a human being mm-hmm and how some people want to say that understanding the suicide bomber is in itself a travesty. Right. The idea that understanding and excusing are the same thing. Right. Which really leads to the idea that people who do horrific things like suicide bombing are not part of the human race, and the fact is they are. And what does that mean? Right. Very much so. So, yeah. Well, listen, we're um, just at a little over 50 minutes okay. <laughs> in our 50-minute hour. I want to thank you uh, for joining yeah, us. Yeah, thank you, Tracy. Uh, New Books and Psychoanalysis. And um, keep in contact and let us know uh, what yeah. you're going to write next. Okay. Okay. Thank you, thank All you right. so much. Good. Thank you. Okay. okay. Bye-bye. Bye.